Amen. And you may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And uh, if you need a Bible, uh, just lift up your hand and I'll make sure one of our men provides you with one. You can either just borrow it for the morning or if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'll be more than happy to give, give one to you. So don't be shy if you need a Bible. This is Acts chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 26 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. These words penned by Luke, a uh, physician and a historian. More importantly, a man who loved Jesus, and he was inspired by the Spirit of God as he was writing these words. So this is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. and Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what a great love you have for your people to send your son, Jesus Christ, to be as a sheep going to the slaughter, willingly, passively, not opening his mouth, not fighting back, not lashing back, even though injustice was being done towards him. You gave Jesus freely. Jesus gave himself freely for the sins of the world. And thank you so much that through the power of the Spirit, you took that gospel message of the sacrifice of Jesus and you saved that Ethiopian man. And we look forward to seeing him in the age to come. God, I pray for anyone here this morning that has not received Jesus Christ, that has not positively responded to the gospel. I pray that this day would be the day where that man, Jesus, who went to the slaughter like a sheep, I pray that that man Jesus would become the, uh, 
the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice for their sins, and that people would respond to it this morning in a way that that sacrifice would apply to them, and they would know forgiveness of sins and newness, newness of life. And God, I pray this morning for the sermon, that the Spirit would speak through Steve, and that the Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts so that we may receive the message. And I pray above all else that you would be glorified and that you would be high and lifted up in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deemer. Good morning, everyone. Every now and then, God changes plans. He just changes your plans on you. You know, he moves you in a, in a different direction. You're, you, or you had something, you, know, you had everything lined out the way you expected things to go, and God just shifts things. Like, I wasn't planning to have the water line in my front yard burst this morning and have a new fountain in our front yard and uh, therefore not be able to get here on time like I wanted to this morning. I uh, didn't plan on uh, my repair job on my toilet last week resulting in uh, a, a leak that caused me some other repairs needing to be done in the house now as well. Uh, so, you know, kind of when it rains, it pours. But, uh, uh, you know, that's life. Life is filled with the unexpected, and God changes the direction and plans uh, uh, from your plans a lot in life. And, and in this case here, there are two people in this story who, who were going about their business, going about their plan for life, for the day, and God intervened. He supernaturally intervened into their life here in this passage. We're continuing to go through the book of Acts verse by verse in our series called He Reigns. And we've seen in this book of Acts how the gospel is spreading, the church is growing, and God is sovereign over that. And uh, every time something seems to happen that might be negative, like the persecution that broke out against Stephen back uh, a, a few sermons back that we study, when something like that would happen, you'd think that, well, maybe this is going to cause problems for the church, but God used it in his div divine design to bring about growth in the church. Uh, to kind of give an illustration of that, because I always try to have some sort of illustration for the kids who are present here this morning. When you think about what's happening in this church, it's kind of like this. I've got this piece of cardboard up here that I'm going to ask one of the kids to hold for me. Um, Victoria, why don't you come up here and hold this for me? And, um, you know, let's say this green piece of paper here represents the church, the church in Jerusalem. Okay, God has, has uh, Jesus has risen again. He sent his spirit on the day of Pentecost. We've seen that, um, that the church has been growing by leaps and bounds. And so this represents this, this big church in Jerusalem now. And, but then uh, there begins to grow, some hostilities begin to grow. First, there were threats, if you remember. They threatened them to stop talking about Jesus. The next thing, because they didn't stop talking about Jesus, they brought in the apostles and, and beat them. And then, finally, we saw the worst type of persecution, which was that Stephen was martyred. And so Satan's goal was to, to, to tear apart the church. Now I want each one of these four corners to represent kind of how big the church is. All right, so maybe it's population. And there's some that guess that the church in, in Jerusalem may have been up to, to 15 or 20,000 people at this time. So let's say it's 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, 5,000. Each corner represents that. And so Satan, in his design, was to come in and to hurt the church. And so Boom, he comes in and persecution starts, and the Hellenist Jews, the Jews that had grown up outside of Jerusalem, were persecuted, and it says they were scattered outside of Jerusalem. But you know, the way God works 
is that he always, when, when persecution or difficulty comes, he just makes it work for his purposes, and he ends up actually growing the church. So because Victoria, how many corners do we have on this sheet now? If I cut off one, we've only got three corners, right? Why don't you count the corners for me? Wait a second. I see four, and I see five. Not only that, the corner that got cut off has, how many corners do I have in my hand? Not just one corner, but I have three. One, two, three. So Stephen gets murdered. He gets cut off from the church, and the Hellenist Jews get scattered. And next thing we know, boom, the church is exploding in Samaria. And as we continue to go through the book of Acts, we'll see it happen over and over and over again. Now how many corners does this have right here? Six, and I've got three over here and, and three over here. And if I were to cut these, because persecution has continued throughout the centuries, it just continues to multiply and multiply and multiply. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. Let me have that with you. Thank you. You can sit down for me. Is that Satan's doing his best to try to stamp out the church, and God's just multiplying it. God's just making it grow. And today is just a continuation. The passage where we've read today is just the next phase of this explosive growth, this time not with huge numbers but with one person because God's not the God of numbers. doesn't matter if there's 5,000 being saved on the day of Pentecost or if there's just one being saved out in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere. God's the one at work and his gospel is spreading. And we see the next phase because first the gospel was confined to Jerusalem, to the Jews in Jerusalem. We begin to see there's a little bit of tension between the Hellenistic Jews and the Jews who had grown up in Palestine and Jerusalem. Uh, and so, the, but beyond that, the gospel hadn't really gone to anybody other than Jews. And then, after the persecution of Stephen, it goes to Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were half Jews, half Gentiles, and they received the gospel. And the, the apostles come out, as we saw last week, and, and they lay their hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. So God confirms that, yes, these Samaritans are also part of the new covenant family. And so now it's spread to the Samaritans. And now we have perhaps the first full Gentile convert in this passage here. It's not just the Samaritans and who are half Jewish, not just the Jews. Now a full Gentile is going to be saved as well. Thank goodness because I think all of us in here probably are Gentiles because now it's spreading out beyond Jerusalem to the Gentile people as well. And the main focus, I believe, of this passage as you read it is God's guidance, God's Spirit's leading in the process of evangelism, the spreading of the gospel, yet God is leading it. God's the one controlling it. God's the one making it happen. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning, God's guidance in evangelism. So I've entitled it, God Reigns in Evangelism. All believers are called to evangelize, to share their faith, to make disciples. We're all called to be part of God's mission to reach people for the sake of Christ. We're called for we are called to put forth effort. We're called to work hard for the kingdom. We're called to make choices to share our faith when we have opportunities. Yet, God is still sovereign over all those efforts. God is sovereign over evangelism. He's not bound by our effort or our lack of it. He's not bound by our choices to share or choices not to share. He's not bound by our work or our failure to work. He's sovereign and he guides and leads and accomplishes his evangelistic kingdom building purposes. There's an excellent little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. And he says this, 
Our evangelistic work is the instrument that God uses for his purpose. But the power that saves is not the instrument. It's in the hand of the one who uses the instrument. So evangelism is God's work, and it's us at work. Evangelism is God's work, but it's us at work. And so I want us to see that in this passage, that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man go hand in hand. God is sovereign in evangelism, and we are responsible to evangelize. The great 19th century preacher, um, British preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, um, was asked if he could reconcile these two truths, the, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And this was his response. He said, I wouldn't try. I never try to reconcile friends. And that's what the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are. They are friends because God is sovereign over evangelism, yet we are responsible to share our faith. So in today's passage, I want us to see that from beginning to end, evangelism is the work of God, yet he uses human instruments to bring about his perfect plan. Evangelism, from beginning to end, is the work of God, yet he uses human instruments to bring about his perfect plan. In this case, the human instruments uh, making choices are Philip, who is the messenger, and the Ethiopian eunuch, who is the recipient of the gospel. Philip is, uh, if you remember, one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve in the church. He's a Hellenistic Jew. Uh, he went to Samaria after the great persecution broke out, and he preached the gospel to them, resulting in a huge harvest of souls. Now, this eunuch, um, he may or may not have been physically a eunuch. There was the, the word eunuch was also used for officials uh, within government, um, government agencies or government uh, uh, royalty. But he, um, he's a eunuch. He's the secretary of treasury, if you will, for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Candace was a royal name given to the mother uh, queen of Ethiopia. The kings were considered to be incarnations of the sun god, and therefore running the, the nation or running the kingdom was considered beneath them. So their mothers uh, ran the kingdom. They went by the hereditary title of Candace. Now, Ethiopia was a large kingdom south of Egypt in modern-day Sudan. It's not to be confused with modern-day Ethiopia. The, the inhabitants, uh, the African inhabitants there, um, the, the, many of the people in the, in, the, in the Greek time, in the Greek text of, of that day and age would call the land of Ethiopia, they called it, the end of the earth, which I find that very interesting. That's why many people outside of the Bible, many of the secular texts, they referred to Ethiopia as the end of the earth. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does Jesus tell? He tells him to take the gospel to J Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and where? It, it, to the ends of the earth. And, and so um, I think that Luke here, as, he, as God sovereignly cho chooses what nation is now receiving the gospel, Luke here sees, wow, God is doing it. It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now to this Ethiopia, this land that's known as the end of the earth. So what do we see happening in this passage? The first thing I want us to see, number one, is that God leads and Philip follows. God leads and Philip follows. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. First thing I want us to see about God's leadership is that God's leadership and guidance doesn't always make sense to us. God's leadership and guidance doesn't always make sense to us. It doesn't always fit within our logical framework. Philip is having a huge success in Samaria. Samaria is exploding with the gospel. There are thousands coming to the Lord in Samaria. 
They've just had the Samaritan Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And, and so they're seeing miracles, lots of things going on in Samaria. And, and God says, Philip, I want you to leave Samaria where your ministry is obviously booming. And I want you to go to a desert place. And God's guidance and leadership doesn't always make sense to us. He's been asked to go to a very rarely used road in the desert. There were two roads uh, to Gaza. There was old Gaza, which was called desert Gaza because it had been destroyed and basically was just had been swallowed up by the desert. And there was new Gaza. The one referred as the desert road was the one to old Gaza. It was a rarely traveled road, and this is the one Philip is on. So God's telling Philip, leave these masses of success by the way, that should change the way we define success in ministry because we define success by numbers. Success in ministry is, are you where God wants you to be? That's success in ministry, and that's how it's defined. Simple. But Philip here, there's quote-unquote success in Samaria. He's done what God wants to do in Samaria, and he says, now go to this back roads, middle of nowhere road. Go there. And I would think that in today's modern culture, if Philip were an evangelist or a pastor in our culture today, it'd be like going from the mega church to the middle of nowhere. From the mega church to the backwoods of Mississippi. I don't know. To, to, from a mega church, and, and today in our culture, I think he would resist that. What do you, what do you wait a second here? We have, we have a, a however many thousand dollar budget here, and, and we're doing all these great things for the Lord. But God doesn't define success by our numbers, by our dollar and cents amounts. God defines success by are we where he wants us to be, doing what he wants us to do. God's leadership and guidance in our lives doesn't always make sense to us. It doesn't always fit into the things that we uh, want to fit it into. I'm reminded of when um, one of the clearest times I remember just a real clear guidance from the Lord was when I was in college. My first two years of college were really, I really just went there to play soccer, to be honest with you. I didn't go to learn anything. I can't remember anything from my first two years of college. I just played a lot of soccer, okay, and I got good enough grades to continue to play soccer. And that's the only reason I went, you know. But then I realized uh, God kind of got a hold of me, got, re got really a hold of me at the, the end of my sophomore year, about the middle of my sophomore year, and, and basically said, you've got to do something with your life, and I want some, you to do something with your life. And so I, I actually began to feel a call into ministry, a stronger call into ministry at that time. But one of the things that was happening at our school, Southern Baptist College there in, in, um, in Abilene, Texas, was that they, they were going through some financial trouble, and they decided to cut all the scholarships for missionary kids. Well, I was there on a scholarship for a missionary kid, and they cut the scholarships, which means school was going to cost a whole lot more the next year. And so I was trying to decide what I was going to do. Was I going to go um, to, uh, to North Carolina, where my parents live, where I could go to a state school and live with them, and it would be a whole lot cheaper to go there? And it all made sense. I actually... It already, my, my credits would all transfer. Even the Bible classes I had taken would all transfer. It all made sense. I was already in contact with the soccer coach there, made sure they had a good soccer team. I was ready to go to UNC uh, Greensboro. And I just felt this really, really strong leading from the Lord not to go. And I remember it as clear as day. I just didn't feel the peace to go. And that's when I, I came across this passage in, in 2 Corinthians where Paul he, he's, 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 he's on this island of, of Troas, and it says that God opens up a door for him there, and, and, and he, a door for ministry, but he doesn't take the opportunity because his, his brother uh, Titus isn't there, so he, he takes leave. 
And he doesn't go through the open door that God's given him. And I remember reading that and saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And I just felt a peace about staying, uh, even though it meant I had to take out loans and all that kind of stuff to continue to stay. And I'm glad I did. And I think the reason God kept me there is because the very next year, my junior year, this really, really good-looking girl showed up on campus. Um, and, uh, well, she's here today, all right? And, uh, and, and God made it very clear to me that he wanted me there, but it didn't make any sense. It didn't make sense to my parents. It didn't make sense to my friends. But it made sense to me because it's what God wanted me to do. It's where he wanted me to be. Also, we need to know that God's leadership and guidance isn't always comfortable. It isn't always comfortable. He sends him toward the south is what your text says if you've read the ESV. You may have it translated a little bit differently in yours because that phrase, toward the south, could also be translated at noon. Now, I don't understand why that can be translated those two different ways. But in the Greek, apparently, when they were inventing the Greek language, they just thought, hey, they ran out of words when they came to noon. So let's just call it south, all right? But anyway, noon and south are the same, and so uh, it could be translated at noon. So it very well may be that he's actually in the desert on a desert road at high noon. That may be the case. It could be very hot. We don't know. But regardless, he's in the desert in Palestine on a road that's not very highly traveled, and it's not a comfortable place to be. God's leadership in your life may not take you to a place of great comfort. It may take you to a place of hardship. But that's okay. It's where God wants you to be. Coming to Georgia, the first two years at least that we were here in Georgia, was not a place of comfort for my family. Matter of fact, we knew it. Heather can testify this. When we felt called to come to Georgia to the staff position I was called to, we knew this is not going to be easy. We felt like it wasn't going to be easy. We were leaving our family behind in Arkansas. It was a tough decision to make. We knew it was the right decision to make, but it was not comfortable. And so God's leadership doesn't always take us to a place of comfort. But one thing we see from Philip throughout this passage is he's sensitive to the leading of God. Verse 27 says, he rose and went. You know, the complete opposite of what, uh, had this been Jonah? Jonah would have rose and gone the opposite direction. But Philip gets up and he goes. Later we read in verse 29, uh, when the Spirit speaks to Philip, he says, go over and join this chariot. Verse 30 says, so Philip ran to follow him. Philip did it. Philip obeyed. Imagine Philip's situation here. This government official, okay, let's try to, try to make it into a, an image that we can understand. This is the Secretary of Treasury. This is Timothy Geithner in a, in, a, um, in a chariot, all right? Not a chariot, but a limo, in a limo with an entourage with people all around him. And he's telling Philip, go up and knock on the window and talk to the person that's in that car. This was an intimidating thing once he sees this entourage of this Ethiopian eunuch uh, coming down the road there. But God tells him to do it, and he follows him immediately. He obeys. He responds. Have you guys ever had an urge where you feel the Spirit leading you to do something? You feel the Spirit leading you perhaps to witness to someone, to make a decision. And the question is, and the question I have for myself, is do we always obey in the same way that Philip obeyed? Or do we say, you know what, God, I, I heard that thing about the desert, but I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to pray over it a couple of nights because, you know, I'm just not sure the desert makes a lot of sense because right here, it's booming, God. We can continue to preach right here. People are coming across. Hey, desert, I don't know. Let me pray over that, God. And we just take our time and we try to delay. And, and, and I think that one of the things we can learn here is when God, when you feel and you're confident, you know the Lord is leading you. And the way God confirms that is through his word, not just through feelings 
through his word and he's confirming that you are to be led by him to do something? Do we obey the way Philip did in this text? Do we blindly trust God when the circumstances look bad, when it looks like it doesn't make sense, and when it's obviously going to be uncomfortable? Has God led you to talk to that coworker at work that you know he has an explosive um, attitude, an explosive anger, and you know that if you go talk to him, it's going to be the most uncomfortable thing in the world to try to share your faith with that person. But you know God's leading you to do it. Well, ask God for the Spirit to give you the strength to do it. If he's leading you to do it, he will make you successful in it, even if that person doesn't come to faith. Because success, again, is defined by whether or not you're obeying the Lord in his leadership. So all throughout scripture we see that God guides and leads his messengers. Successful evangelism again has a whole lot less to do with our clever systems or outlines or strategies than it does with God's leading in our lives. But not only does God guide and lead his messenger of the gospel, he also is intimately involved in the proclamation of the gospel. So point number two I want us to see is that God prepares and Philip declares. God prepares and Philip declares. And when I talk about God preparing, I'm talking about him preparing the recipient. God prepares the recipient. First of all, this eunuch was on a remote desert road. And God has sent, obviously, Philip to this lonely desert road for this one person. Because God had prepared this one person to be ready to receive the gospel. Uh, God had prepared the eunuch by giving him a responsive and sensitive heart. Look at what the eunuch has been doing. Verse 27, it says he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Somehow, in God's providence, this man had come in contact with Judaism in the middle of a culture that worshipped the sun. So somehow, in the middle of this culture, like I said earlier, where the king worships the sun and doesn't do any work, and his mom does everything, okay, in the middle of this culture where the sun is what they adore, this guy hears about Yahweh. He hears about the one true God, and God has made his heart sensitive enough to that that he has traveled to Jerusalem to worship this one true God. God has given this man a measure of light, and he has responded to the light he had. This man is a genuine seeker of God. This, um, this book that he's reading, Isaiah, okay, in Isaiah 55, 6, perhaps he's even come across this verse. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This man was seeking to know more about the one true God. He had made this long journey, okay? But it was very likely, especially in light of what we know about Judaism at this time, that he left feeling pretty empty. First of all, he was a foreigner. Second of all, he was a eunuch, which means he would not have been denied entrance into the temple. So it's very likely that he left feeling very, very empty. He would also have probably been denied the opportunity to become a proselyte of Judaism. He, he could have converted to Judaism because of his status as a eunuch. And so he very well may be on this desert road feeling very empty, but God has him right where he wants him. He had prepared him with a sensitive, seeking heart. And this is what God does. He stirs up the desire in the heart. He stirs up the seeker to start seeking. After all, Romans 3.11 tells us that none seek God. And that's not a contradiction. The fact of the matter is, none seek God without God working in your heart. So God has worked in this man's heart. He has given him a measure of light. This man is responding to the light. And now God's about to give him more light. And not only has God given him a responsive and sensitive heart, God's given him something much greater. 
God's given this man a copy of the scriptures. God's given him his word. It says in verse 28, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this man was very blessed to have a copy of the scriptures. Most people weren't just carrying a scroll in their back pocket, all right? Most people that day did not have a copy of the scriptures. Only wealthy, wealthy people did. And even wealthy people usually didn't have them laying around. This guy has a copy of the scriptures. And God has blessed him with a copy of Isaiah at least. Maybe he's even read in Isaiah 56. Maybe he read this at one point as he's been traveling. It says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and they shall not be cut off. So perhaps he's left Jerusalem feeling empty, but he's reading God's word and he's feeling full. Oh, man, that can be me. How can I have that everlasting name? How can I be part of a covenant where I'm never cut off? How can that be me? And we know he is reading Isaiah 53. That's the passage of Scripture that is quoted here. It says this, Like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And so he's reading this Isaiah 53 passage, and and so he's reading this, and he's confused. He doesn't quite know what's going on, and God's about to shed a whole new level of light upon this man. You know, while God and his attributes can be discerned somewhat through nature, the Bible tells us that in Romans 1.20, a true saving saving knowledge of God can only come through the revelation of God in the Scriptures. John 5.39 says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Jewish people had the Scriptures, They had the very words that declared Christ, but they failed to see him. Many, many of the Jews today still fail to see Christ in Isaiah 53. I did a little study this weekend on Isaiah 53 and just looking at some Jewish interpretations today of Isaiah 53. And it's amazing the extent they'll go to today to try to show that that's not about Jesus. (laughs) Go out of the way to say, no, it can't be. It can't be Jesus. And it's got to be about Israel in general. And so today, people are still failing to see that the Bible declares Jesus. And Jesus himself laments in Luke 24, 25. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ that he should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So God has prepared this man with a sensitive heart to the light of his revelation. And then God draws him with the power of the word. Evangelism, I think the application for us here is that evangelism can never be divorced from the Word. Evangelism can never be divorced from the Scriptures. Okay, If you base your evangelistic efforts on philosophical, scientific, or whatever type of discussions, it might be good, it might be rational discussions to prove that God exists, but you don't ever go to the Word of God, your evangelism will be fruitless. Because it cannot be separated from the scriptures. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For what? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God can and has saved people through their own simple reading of the scriptures themselves. But God's usual way of operating is to give someone to explain the scriptures. So God prepares, but Philip in this case 
declares, verse 30, so Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. By the way, in antiquity, everyone read out loud. Uh, reading silently was actually kind of a weird thing. If you, if you read silently, people thought you were kind of strange. Today, it's the other way around. If you're reading your book out loud, people are looking at you kind of weird. But so he's reading, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Philip knew that God had called him to go and make disciples. He didn't just assume that this guy had it all together because he's reading Isaiah. The Ethiopian official has got a Bible, but he doesn't have a clue. Okay, and Philip didn't just assume, well, he's reading a Bible. I guess everything's okay. You see, I, I'm afraid I got really convicted here. Because, you know, me, sometimes I stop short on my evangelism. Because I may be talking to someone about Christ, and they'll say, you know what, I go to church, and I'll go, oh, that's great, yeah, yeah. And I stop right there. And I just assume because they're going to church that they have a relationship with Christ. Or they may say, yeah, I've read, I've read that, that in the Bible, or I have a Bible, or I read my Bible, and I stop short right there. But in reality, we need to go all the way. He, Philip could have heard Isaiah and go, oh, great. I'm glad, I'm glad he's got a copy of the Scriptures. I'm just going to go my way now, head back to Samaria. He didn't do that. He stops and says, do you understand? You understand what you're reading. And we should be convicted there because I think, I always look for an out. Because I'm very uncomfortable in evangelism. I'll just be honest with you. I struggle with it. And I'm uncomfortable with it. And, and, and it's one thing to share my own story, but, but you know, to challenge what someone else believes, that's, that's hard sometimes. And, and so here, I think we need to learn from Philip that we need to probe a little deeper and make sure someone understands. Do you understand what that is? You go to church, that's great. Why do you go to church? Do you understand what John 3, I know you, I know you just said to me John 3, 3, 16, do you know what that means? And we need to be willing to probe a little deeper in our evangelistic efforts. The eunuch's response is exactly what I think many people are asking today when they're introduced to the Scriptures. How can I understand unless someone guides me? How can I understand? They want someone to come alongside and help them understand the Scriptures. God can make people, help people understand the Scriptures on His own. But His means of using, the means, He uses people a lot of times to help others understand the Scripture. The eunuch asked in verse 34, And whom, I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or, or someone else? And I love it. Uh, Luke puts it in there. He says, And Philip opened his mouth. Philip opens his mouth. Okay, now he's got the opportunity to share, and he's going to open his mouth. And we've got to be willing to open our mouth. When we have the opportunity, get the courage, ask the Spirit to help you, and just open your mouth and say what needs to be said. Romans 10, 12 through 15 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Not only did Philip open his mouth, he was totally focused on Jesus. It says, in beginning with the scriptures, with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. All scripture points to Jesus. Beginning to end, all scripture points to Jesus. And we can get in biblical discussions with people, and we can talk about biblical history, and we can talk about ethics, and we can talk about philosophical things. We can talk about how the world was created uh, Six days or six million years, and you can get in those discussions with people. But you know what? you got to get back to Jesus. you got to get to the cross. Evangelism isn't evangelism if you're just talking about a bunch of other stuff. 
It's about Jesus, and you got to get back to the cross. And so Philip here goes straight to Jesus. He says, this is about Jesus. And beginning with that scripture, he took a bunch of other scriptures from the Old Testament and pointed to Jesus. That's the application for us, is that we have to point to Christ. If we're not pointing to Christ, then it's not evangelism. That's why lifestyle evangelism is insufficient. Although I think you should live a lifestyle that people look at you and say, Hey, wow, there's something different about you. I believe that. But it's insufficient if you're not opening your mouth and proclaiming Jesus. There was a story, I meant to bring it as an illustration. There was a story, and, and people in our small group, which meets on Wednesday nights, um, can help correct me. But it was uh, in, in this book that there was a man who, who came to faith, in, uh, and he, was, he went back to his workplace and he told his boss that he became a Christian. And his boss said, oh, that's great. I'm a Christian too. And he asked his boss, well, how come, how come you never told me? And, uh, and he said, oh, that's right. He, said, he tells his boss, he tells his boss, well, I didn't know you were a Christian. You're the reason I haven't been saved up to this point, which really convicted his boss. And, and I guess his boss probably thought, well, have I been living a horrible lifestyle? And he, he goes, no, I try, to live, I try to live like Jesus. He goes, that's the whole point. He goes, I saw that you were a good person. You were a moral person. And I thought, well, he's not a Christian. I don't need Christ either. I can be like my boss. I can just be a moral person. I can just be a good person. This boss was living a lifestyle evangelism. His employees saw a difference in him, which is good. But the boss never opened his mouth and never proclaimed Jesus. And so this poor employee thought, hey, I can be a good person just like my boss. And he was on a road to hell because he never was given the information that he needed, which is that Jesus saves. I just totally butchered that story. But you can go to page 111 in uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, written by Donald Whitney. Okay, I think it sells for $12.95 on Amazon. Okay? Number three, my final point. God draws and the eunuch responds. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? The eunuch is now ready, after hearing the gospel proclaimed, to declare his allegiance to Christ. He's ready to be baptized. Baptism was used by the Jews to, to, to proselytize. If a proselyte, if someone came, a foreigner, and they wanted to become a Jew, they were baptized by immersion, and they became a Jew. He was probably denied that right in Jerusalem because he was a eunuch. He's probably denied that right. And now he comes and he sees, hey, here's water. He wants to declare his allegiance to Christ. He wants to receive this right. He wants to, to uh, profess that Jesus is his Lord. It's a different type of baptism than the one he had originally gone to Jerusalem to receive. This type of baptism professed his faith in Jesus. This type of baptism identifies himself with the Christ of Isaiah 53. This type of baptism declares that this man, previously shut out, is now accepted into the new covenant family. This baptism signals that new life has begun. And God has done all the work in him. God has done this in his heart. He put a sensitive heart in this man. He gave him the light of truth. He gave him his word. He sent him an evangelist to proclaim Christ. God has been the one drawing him consistently to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus says. It, it can only happen that way according to Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him. 
No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so that's what God has been doing in this passage, drawing this man to himself, and then boom, yes, he's converted. He now belongs to the family of God. And, God, and Luke continues to point out the special providential work of the Spirit. They're in the middle of where? The desert. And, and the way Luke words it, it's, it, I mean, when he says, look, see, here's water, it's almost like the eunuch is surprised. Whoa, look, a pool, a baptismal pool right in the middle of the desert. Awesome. And that's just Luke's way. Of, I, think it's, I think when they were reading, they probably would have kind of chuckled at this. Luke said, man, this is amazing. God is still providentially at work here. Right at the moment this guy's ready to be saved, they're in their chariot, okay, and they come upon a pool of water so that this man can profess and proclaim his faith in Christ. Verse 38 says, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. We don't have a whole lot of time to talk about verse 37. If your Bible doesn't have verse 37, it probably has it in a footnote. And if your Bible does have verse 37, that's fine as well. But the reason it's in a footnote is because most of the original, the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 37. And most scholars today believe it was a scribal insert at some point. But uh, it doesn't make a difference because we know that the Bible teaches us that you have to proclaim Christ in order to be saved. And so this man is not saved by his baptism. He's saved by his profession of faith in Christ, which is what baptism symbolized in Acts anyway. Only today have we turned it into something different in many churches. Conclusion. Here we go. So God initiates, leads, prepares, draws, and his people respond, follow, declare, and receive the message. And if this passage didn't emphasize the Spirit's leading enough, it ends in a miraculous way. Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. The word there, carried Philip away, was the same used in the Septuagint referring to Elijah, when Elijah was carried away. So the Spirit carries him away. So I don't know what happens here. I don't know if it's just a boom, like it's like teleporting, like on Star Trek, where he disappears, or if it's like a swooshing thing, and there's water flying as he goes up. I don't know. But something miraculous happens, and Philip ends up in a city that's 20 miles away. Boom. And that's what happens in the passage. I think, again, it's the same pattern we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Word and wonder. Word and wonder. Word and wonder. God's word proclaimed, miracle to prove it. God's word proclaimed, and a miracle to back it up. And we see it again right here in this passage. The Spirit is still absolutely in control and leading in every part of this passage. Let me close with just a couple of points of application for us this morning. Number one. As I asked earlier, are you sensitive? Are we sensitive to God's leading, to the Spirit's leading in our life? Are we sensitive to what He's telling us to do? Who is it? Who is on your mind right now that God has said, I want you to witness to this person? Who is it? Because the question isn't whether or not you've been called to be a witness. The question is whether or not you are being a witness. Because we've all been called to be a witness. The Great Commission is for all people. Secondly, are we willing to follow God's lead when it doesn't make sense or when it makes for hardship in our life? Thirdly, do we believe that God has gone before us to prepare the field for sowing the word in the harvest? I think one of the reasons we're scared to go follow God's lead, we're scared to talk to our coworker, even though we felt the Spirit of God telling us over and over and over again, talk to your coworker. The reason we're scared is because we're scared they're going to reject us or we're scared we're not going to know what to say. But that's a lack of trust in the fact that God is a God who goes before us. He's a God who goes before us and prepares the heart. 
Therefore, it's not about how good we do. We should trust in God. He's the one that goes before and prepares the field. And so do we believe that God has gone before us? Number four, are we familiar enough with God's word that we can explain it when need be? To be a challenge to all of us. Can we say what Philip said? Do you understand that? Or do we have to say, I don't get it either. Do we know the word well enough that we can explain it to people when they have questions? Are we, are we ready to give an answer like Philip was ready to open his mouth and give an answer? Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, Walk in wisdom towards others, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So knowing how to answer someone when they have a spiritual question, we give, you, we give people an out on this all the time. Uh, you don't have to know the answers. No? I, I'm changing my mind on that. Colossians says you need to know how to answer. Because we've given ourselves plenty of excuses to stay out of this book and we don't need another one. Get in this book. Know this book. Memorize this book. Meditate upon this book. Read it every day. Let it permeate your life that you're so familiar with it. Just you don't have to memorize it because it's there. It's coming out of you. You sweat word. Let it be such a part of your life that you're ready to answer. Paul didn't say, you know, if you just haven't had time to get up in the mornings, don't worry about answering people when they ask you questions. He said, have an answer. Be ready to explain. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3.15. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Those are two commands, one from Paul, one from Peter, both from the Spirit of God, that we should know how to answer people. So I'm not going to give any of us, myself included, an excuse to stay out of this book and not know how to tell people about Jesus. We need to know it. And we need to be in this book. And if we're not, that should be your first place of starting today to become an evangelist is to get back in this book daily and let it change you. Let it make you into a person that has answers. And finally, do we hold a strong view of the sovereignty of God in evangelism? If we do, it should make us more bold because we don't have to worry about things as much because God's the one in control. If we do, it'll make us less dependent upon our methods or systems. You don't have to be fumbling around going, okay, uh, number one, do you... No, we trust that God's the one in your control here. If you do, are you willing to be patient? And are you willing to be prayerful? Because if you're trusting in the sovereignty of God, you're going to go to your knees before you ever share the faith because you know that he's the one who's got to do the work in their heart. Let's pray right now, and we'll close with one song and a time of response. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, I just confess to you that I am so, so weak in evangelism. Father, I know your spirit is leading me. And so, Lord, I know there are some changes I need to make in my own life. And, Father, you preached this message to me first. And so, God, I don't want to stand up here and be a hypocrite and, and say that we've got to be willing to follow your lead and to share our faith with people trusting in your sovereign design when I myself have failed to do it so often in my life. So, God, I, ask, I confess and I ask your forgiveness for that sin. And I pray, God right now, that you stir up in us a desire, a desire to share our faith. But I believe that's where it starts. I, I think that so many of us don't have a passion to share our faith. And so, God, I pray that you'd stir up a desire in our heart to see people come to faith. I pray, Father, that you'd stir up a, an understanding from your word that you are sovereign, 
that you're not sitting up in heaven wringing your hands trying to wonder if we're going to obey you or not. You've got, a, you've got a plan. You've got a purpose. God, you want us to come alongside and work alongside the work you're already doing in this world. So, God, I pray, Father, that you'd help us have a strong view of your sovereignty. And, Lord, I pray that this church, as we continue to grow, as we continue to look for ways we can minister to this community, God, I pray that you'd, you'd just fill us, fill us with a spirit of, of love towards people. Lord, keep us from becoming inward focused. It's so easy just to focus on ourselves and what we like. And God, there's so many other people out there. There's people that have totally different um, tastes than we have. There's people that have, have, have different types of family baggage in their life that maybe we don't have. There's all kinds of issues. And God, we cannot be so closed-minded that we're just looking in on ourselves. God, we want to edify the saints, but we also know we need to evangelize the sinners. So God, we ask now that you go before us. Lord, as we sing this song, as we respond with our prayer requests, as we respond with our offering, God, I pray, Lord, that you'd be magnified and glorified and that, um, Lord, that we'd leave here on fire and excited about sharing, our go- sharing the gospel, sharing our faith with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you-